0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's sometimes good to have that voice in your head telling us that, you know, something's going terribly wrong. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius, uh, with me in the studio are my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein.
1: But which one of us is which?
0: Um, well, <laughs> you can only tell by using your eyes. So <laughs> what if, <laughs> kind of question is that? It's challenging. We're all a little... A some yeah. of us
1: are, are a, little be a little... I think you a little
2: tired from... A little, little
1: tired, a little sick.
2: How do you pronounce the Super Tuesday with the fives? What's the right Fuper pronunciation?
1: Super... Tooth day? <laughs>
0: It's just it's a it's a purely typographical joke that does not. So we spelled Super Tuesday, but with the numeral five replacing the S's. Pretty
2: witty. Yeah, it's pretty
0: awesome, but it doesn't translate into the podcast medium. The point is New Jersey, California, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota and Montana voted. They did. And Hillary Clinton won four out of the
1: six. I think that's right. Yes. Sanders won North Dakota and Montana. 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 And, and so has, it's worth noting, Hillary Clinton didn't just win four of the six. She also won the nomination. But she won the ones where people live.
2: Yes. Well, I, I, would say, I would say- And won the nomination yeah. is another important
0: thing. So I, I would say there's, there's there's three levels of like pure results here. Like one is- She won the remaining delegates she needed to go, clearly a majority of pledged delegates as well as over the top in in the total count. Uh, The other is that she won the um, tactical battle against Sanders. Sanders had pitched his campaign in California because the whole campaign at this point had become a little bit of a sort of – meta campaign and struggle to control the narrative. So Bernie just parked himself in California, you know, said, if we can win in California and do well in the other five states, we're going to head into the convention with a lot of momentum. Uh, but he didn't do well in California. He he lost California convincingly. What was the margin? Um, I, I think the votes have not all okay. fully, fully been, been counted, but it, it's something like a six or seven point margin, not like a Crushing landslide, but uh, it's actually
1: larger than the final polls, which were showing two to three point margins. Yeah, it was.
0: It was. She she outperformed her polls. The other thing related to that is that, of course, what happens in South Dakota does not matter numerically because no people live there. But but South Dakota is a very prototypical. Bernie state um, with the the sort of whiteness of a giant empty square state, uh, very slightly leavened by the presence of a Native American population. Uh, the fact that Clinton won there looks like an indication that there's a certain amount of demobilization of Bernie people, you know, that, that some people who demographically seem like Bernie people didn't actually show up and vote, that his campaign was not running a full organization out there. They didn't do South Dakota, you know, GOTV. New Mexico is also a a little bit significant because one of the raging controversies in this whole campaign has been about the um, voting behavior of Latinos, uh, in which there's been some conflicting and fragmentary exit polling. But Hillary Clinton keeps winning all of the Places that have large Hispanic populations, which seems like a, a strong indication that let you know people are voting for her. It's of course possible that that's not the reason why she like won Clark County and won Florida and won the Texas border counties and, and so forth. But that seems to be the case. So yeah, basically,
1: Wait, she, what was the third level? What you said she you said there were three levels on which she won, and there was a tactical level. There was a oh the, delegates the, the, level. the
0: tactical level in California the pledge delegates level. And then the third was these like narrative points around Latinos, around uh, uh, like the, the Bernie state, this, is, states fucking, this is fucking deep, man. I
1: just think it's really, really going deep. I just, let think me,
0: let me add one. It was a basically an across the board, catastrophic performance by Bernie Sanders who had a slightly bank shoddy theory of how he was going to win. And none of those things came. Let,
1: let me best. add two things here. Um, one is that, because I think these are important signals of what's happening in the campaign. One is that Bernie Sanders laid off half of his staff last night, right. which is not what you do if you're expecting to go into the general. Um, the second is that the political revolution got Politicoed. There was an article that came out in Politico. It was actually one of the more extraordinary pieces of campaign reporting. Um, I don't just mean extraordinary in terms of it being quality reporting, though it was, but also just like you rarely see something like this. Bernie Sanders' aides... Some on the record, some off the record, some leaking emails internally from the campaign basically went to Politico and said what's been going on lately is not our fault. It is a candidate's fault. They said that he has become resentful and upset. And I, I do not bring this up to uh, make Sanders look bad. I think that can, campaigns are never as bad as they look when they are losing. And for a candidate, losing is such a difficult emotional exhausting experience. The Bernie Sanders, who I think ultimately concedes the election, will not be the one reflected in that in that article. But the, the reason I think that article is important is two things. One is you're seeing Bernie Sanders' aides are trying to position themselves for jobs with other democratic campaigns because they need jobs with other democratic campaigns. Yeah, they, they need a job when this is over. And the other is that this is just not a campaign in a functional place to be executing further strategy. There's not going to be internal support for Bernie Sanders. It looked to me from the stakeholders inside his campaign to launch some kind of really quixotic effort here. So as you say, Matt, I think that there was like the raw results, but then there was also the kind of effect this is having internally uh, on the Sanders campaign. And this is a campaign that looks to me to be in a lot of different ways preparing to shut itself down.
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzell-y things in there that that I also also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, So it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. NatureBox.com weeds.
2: So another thing I've been thinking about and, you know, something I want to talk about on this episode was we now have our first female candidate from a major party, For president, which is is a big deal. (laughs) Which is a big deal. But also in a weird way, like hasn't been a focus or like felt like a big deal in this process. You know, part of it might be the fact we've had this democratic primary that has gone on for quite a long time and, and isn't fully over with Sanders still in the campaign and I think still pledging to go into a contested. Yeah, that's Con- that's that's, that's where we're at right as now. As of
0: as of Wednesday morning, that's okay, what he's so saying. If it um, changes
2: by the time we publish Friday, we're not responsible for that. But we, you know, have our uh, first female candidate from a major party, which I think there's something interesting in um, one the fact it happened, but also two that it hasn't really struck as like this big deal moment. Um, And that's one thing I've been thinking about a little bit and wrote about for Vox today, or I guess this will be two days ago when everyone listens to this, is that I think some of the things that have happened, women advancing in the workplace for young women who are looking at this election, don't see it as much of a big deal that, you know, they've graduated from college in the same Sort of numbers as as men, actually in higher numbers, that they're going into the workforce with a very small pay gap, at least when they start, and have been Brig or Bernie's supporters. That it's not really just a story about Bernie Bros, it's a story about young women supporting Sanders in higher numbers. So I think that's something very interesting and kind of remarkable, both the fact we have a female nominee. And the fact that it, there doesn't seem to be as much like, holy shit, we have a female nominee going on. Well, and I also Did you
1: feel that that began to change last night? It's something that I was watching yeah. in, in the commentary and in, in the reaction, something that I heard anecdotally, and, and, and frankly, I think felt myself a little bit, was that people watching Hillary Clinton offer what was basically a, a nomination acceptance speech last night. A lot of people felt more of the history of her role in that moment than had been until now. I heard a a lot of people say they were crying. I mean, did did you feel that that began to shift?
2: I think, I think yes. I mean, there was this post that the Clinton campaign put up that I've just seen shared everywhere of her and like a little girl say, you know, saying like, I, I don't know exactly what the text is, but basically the point was like, now you've had a woman run for office and, you know, making the like showing how historic it is. So I think there is, you know, on one hand, a shift, but... I don't know. It just hasn't felt like—and maybe this will, like, grow over the election, and maybe if Clinton does win the the election, then it'll be, like, the holy shit moment. I would say, like, it doesn't feel the same as when Obama clinched the nomination, Mm -hmm. when, like, I felt like there was even more of an outpouring of, like, look at this historic thing we've achieved than there is with Clinton clinching it. And I don't know if that's a result of gender, if that's a result of this particular election, but it seems less dramatic than 2008. So
0: w- one factor that, that I feel is at work here is that there was nothing comparable that I can think of to Obama's uh, presidency occurring anywhere in the world. Like there's n- not been like a Turkish ancestry chancellor of Germany you know, that that kind of thing. Whereas we've seen in other, like, advanced electoral democracies, a woman be prime minister of the UK, a woman be prime minister of Canada, a woman be chancellor of Germany, um, several women be prime ministers of, of Nordic countries. So the sort of factual predicate, can a woman be elected, was like, among elites, I think a question that felt more settled. It's not just that that you know before Barack Obama there had never been an African American uh, nominee, but there are very few African Americans representing majority white constituencies of any kind at any level. That's changed a little bit since his election. Uh, Cory Booker and, and Tim Scott are both senators, and, and Kamala Harris is, is likely to be the, the next senator from California. Um, but at the time. Obama was running. He was the only black politician in any statewide office in the United States, I believe. Um, and he had won in a really fluky kind of uh, election down there in in Illinois. And I think I think there was like a real feeling that like he wouldn't win. And then when he did, it was very surprising. We we're telling for a whole bunch of reasons. Like there a Quite a few women senators, woman governors. Hillary was favored to win the nomination the whole time. There have been a lot of women prime ministers. So it's not that it isn't. I think when you look back, it's like this is a big historical moment. But when you sort of confront it in the moment, no one was like, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton might win because people people thought like 10 years ago that Hillary Clinton might be president. So
1: I want to interrogate that feeling, though, because I think it is really interesting and and I've been thinking a lot about it. So we're dealing with a situation here where not only has a woman never won the presidency of the United States of America, but no woman has ever been a nominee, a major party nominee for president. And before Hillary Clinton in 2008, no woman had ever come close. There had been a woman on the vice presidential ticket twice, right, Palin and then before her Ferraro. But No one had ever come close to actually being, no woman ever come close to being the nominee. And so I think the first thing that should make you think is a premise, given that we have had, uh, I think it's 56 elections, uh, presidential elections, although I think roughly 33 of them, I ran the numbers on this last night, 33 of our elections happened before women gained the right to vote. Uh, So we've only had, uh, since 1920 the elections where women had the, or, or white women had the right to vote. So... I think the first thing that should make you think is it's actually really fucking hard. And it is a weird thing that we got into this space with Hillary Clinton where we began to think that it was inevitable or overwhelmingly likely that she would manage to do this thing that not only had no one managed to do before her, but that no one had even come close to doing. And I think first that has created a a very weird Discourse around her, where somehow we have really underestimated, in my view, the difficulty of this. But the other thing that that I've come to think, and I was really influenced in this by Rebecca Tracer's really excellent profile of Hillary Clinton in New York Magazine. But she was talking about how Clinton, in particular, but often women candidates, just don't get judged as having the charisma, the magnetism of an Obama, a Bill Clinton, even to some degree a George W. Bush. But then she was like. Donald Trump, really? Like we're going to say that Hillary Clinton is just too workhorse-like and good student and to, to match up to Donald Trump. And she was saying, you know, at some point we have to ask whether the way we have set up presidential elections and the way we have coded being a good politician – is selecting for male traits in 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 ways maybe that we don't really know how to express, but but is true, and that let me think a lot about the way Hillary Clinton won this election and the way that we have reacted to it, because she presents in many ways as a weak and and flawed candidate. She's not great on the stump. There's um, who seem to inspire, and so you get these conversations, and I hear them all the time of why doesn't it feel more inspiring? when Hillary Clinton runs it, in the way that Barack Obama's campaign really felt inspiring to people. He was great at giving these speeches and so forth. And one thing that I think is interesting here is that Clinton ended up winning the election by building a tremendous set of coalitions and really relying on deep relationships in politics. And she did this in a way that no non-incumbent has, at least in my memory. She had rolled up more of the Democratic Party than any non-incumbent uh, candidate had, to my knowledge, really ever. And... What I think is interesting about that is that from there, she started with that tremendous amount of establishment support, and then as the campaign turned to like giving speeches and being inspiring and speaking confidently in front of rooms, she would each time in 08 and then again in 2016 begin to bleed support. And then we would look at her and say she's this very flawed candidate. But I actually sort of have come to think it's the opposite, that Clinton turned out to have a tremendous set of skills that are not the ones we typically know how to prize in American politics, but... That inside game, the building of those relationships, the creating of these massive coalitions, like when you look at studies of female leadership, these traits are much more are much more common among female leaders and they were extremely, extremely prevalent in clinton 's campaign and they led her doing this incredibly hard thing and I really think we underrate it as an achievement, and then I think what 's even sort of a, a double bind. You know, she actually got like then it began to be that Hillary Clinton is corrupt for having rolled up the Democratic establishment, for having built these coalitions, for having built this gigantic web of relationships. That unless you do this with inspiring speeches and like getting people thrilled from the rafters, that you're like an establishment politician who in some ways is rigging the is rigging the game because you did all that behind the scenes work as opposed to the in front of the camera work. And I don't know. That, this is That's a bit of a rambly answer, but I, I think there's something we have really underrated here about the degree to which the way we are used to campaigns being run, selects for traits that are stereotypically male, and the way Clinton ran a campaign that actually diverged sharply from that strategy, it worked. But we have, rather than I think being impressed by that, continued to sort of either dismiss it or in some cases scold her for it.
2: Right. Like say like you didn't do this the right way that we're used to right. seeing campaigns. This is something it's for a project I'm working on that you'll see on Vox.com in the next few weeks about a good website. <laughs> a great website <laughs> I encourage you to read when you're not listening to this excellent podcast. There's a lot of interesting political science research kind of looking at this question that's become more of a debate over the past few years. Is it harder for women to run for political office? And The presidency is a bit hard to look at just because we have so few examples. We only have an example right now of one—we, as of today, have one woman who's run as a major party candidate. But there's a lot of research looking at um, congressional elections and how women are perceived by voters. Is it actually harder or not? Um, For the past few decades, really, the kind of conventional wisdom has been, you know, yes, it is harder. That there's some fascinating research looking at how voters perceive women— and if you just give people like a generic woman candidate, generic male candidate, they will just say that the woman is more liberal. Like they will, if you're going to run against each other, you'll just find that the bias is that women are more liberal. You find women are coming from less connected positions. So they are fundraising as much, but they are arguably having to work harder to fundraise. Um, and so you have a lot of these kind of sense and a sense of like sexism and the campaign trail kind of more overt than what you're talking about, which I think is a really kind of interesting, more subtle point about how we kind of bias typically male traits in campaigns, but also more overt critiques of appearance, of people's voices, of what they look like, that that's something that women have to contend with on the campaign trail. So that's kind of been the prevailing wisdom for the past few decades. And then this really interesting new book came out earlier this or last month by um, two political scientists, Danny Hayes and Jennifer Lawless, Which made the opposite argument, which actually argues, you know, it isn't harder to run as a woman, it's just as hard. And we keep perpetuating this myth that it's harder, and that's actually what's holding women back from Mm -hmm. running. I have some kind of quibbles with their arguments, but I think it's a really interesting one where they look at how candidates are covered, for example, and say, yes, in the presidential, there's like a lot of talk about appearance. You look at congressional candidates, men's appearance actually gets covered more in the local media than women's appearance, for example. Or if you look at kind of the types of tweets they're doing, they're running very similar campaigns on their end that male campaigns and female campaigns don't look very different. And a lot of this research that we have from a few decades ago about candidates being perceived as like better on economic issues or more conservative or liberal, a lot of that isn't true when you're testing actual candidates' names. The argument is that polarization has been really good for women because what matters is like if you're a D or an R, not if you're a woman or a man. So it's it's been an interesting argument I've been thinking about lately. Is it just as easy? Is it becoming easier to run as a woman, but is watching kind of like what Clinton went through making it harder, making it more difficult and kind of more nerve wracking for women to kind of get into politics in the first place?
0: I think, you know, when characterizing that lawless research, and I think you find this with a, a lot of different kinds of studies that that look at to spread outcomes between women and men, that there's like two different levels on which you can be talking. And one is like, do women face overt discrimination. And another is do women face structural barriers to entry, right? And I think you see in a lot of the um, pay gap literature, for example, that there's relatively little evidence of like two identically situated women and men are like applying for an identical job and everything about them is completely identical, but the woman is being offered less money. But then there's lots of evidence that women are held back by various large-scale social conventions, that more of the people who are held back by family circumstances and and things like that are women, right? And that that's like why on a society-wide level you you see this. And and to me, I, I feel like that to frame the Hayes Lawless research in the most provocative way, you say like, we've found that women don't don't face problems running for office. But what they really found is that women who achieve launch velocity do just as well as men who also do that, right? But there's like big picture reasons, some related to – social norms and and some related to structural consequences in workplaces more generally, it seems to me why fewer women put themselves forward. And like Hillary Clinton's life story, it seems to me pretty emblematic of this, right? That like they're young, Bill and Hillary are both like graduates of a top law school. They're both like off in Low-level but good jobs for low-level people to have, like their careers are off to a nice start. But then, you know, they get married, they move back to Bill's home state because Bill is from Arkansas, he can be a politician in Arkansas, Hillary can't really. Um, They have a baby. Bill is governor. There's this kind of two for the price of one rhetoric about how Hillary is a competent professional person who has the skills to be involved in government. But what that means in a practical sense is that she's like part-timing, helping her husband out with his important job. They have this like career arc that spans decades. Now eventually, Hillary is like a senator, she's Secretary of State, she's a presidential candidate, but by that time their daughter is all grown up, right? Is out of the house. She's at an age when normal people are retiring, and she's like just now <laughs> reaching this career peak, and by the time she's in a position to do that, she's facing a lot of problems in her political persona that aren't because she's a woman so much as they are because she's been a highly visible public figure for a thousand years, right? So like she has all this weird baggage from like the cultural politics of the mid-90s, right? And she um, used to have a Southern accent when she was First Lady of Arkansas. And she says she likes Beyonce's new album, and that doesn't seem legitimate to people, right? <laughs> and it's just like—but it, it, so it's like on one level, she's not—she's she, she's facing these problems really because she's been around so long, but— the reason why the first woman who's in a position to win is someone who's been in public life for a bajillion years <laughs> has to do with, like, the structural position of women in American society sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and American I, right. culture. I, and I think, yeah. like, they would—I I think the authors no, no, in the book would acknowledge would. that. I think
2: what they would say is, is we're trying to give women one less obstacle to running that, like, to say— you don't have to worry that you're going to face like an overtly sexist campaign. Like they did some survey research in it where you ask people, you know, how hard is it for a woman to succeed in business and politics and journalism? And they find that everyone thinks politics is the hardest. Right. And basically their argument is that this is something that's holding more women back, that they're saying, eh, you know what, I'm not going to run for office because I don't want people to listen to people criticizing, you know, my, how I talk and how I look all day long. I, I don't want to face this kind of uneven playing field. So I think you're definitely right. The playing field is already uneven to begin with. I think the idea that they're trying to push there is this is one of those obstacles that with data, hopefully you could say, like, if this is the reason you're going to put off running, like, it's not it's not a good reason. It's right. not it's as like, real as you might think. It's
0: like if you're an assistant U.S. attorney mm-hmm. and you know there's a state senate seat opening sure. up where you yes. live and you kind of always wanted to be a politician... Like, yeah, you should go for it.
2: Right. But right? you have to get to the—yes, I totally agree there are all these obstacles with getting to the assistant state attorney position in the first place that are that are still much more real for women over men.
0: It's always struck me that, like, one of the things about this—you really saw this in the contrast between Clinton and Obama in, in 2008, right? But it was like Obama was this, like, young guy, seemed completely unqualified for the presidency. Like, obviously so, Um, But a lot of people who seemed unqualified had been elected president in the past um, and he's like pretty like presidential looking and he's good at giving speeches and he had a um, uh, right for the moment, you know, track record on the Iraq war. So it was like, yeah, fuck it. Like, run, right? And people wrote, like, Ryan Liz, I think it was, like, wrote, like, a great, like, it was, like, a seminal article. It was, like, a lot of people in this position would feel that really the right thing to do is try to, like, amass a plausible level of experience and documentation, (laughs) but that would be a huge mistake. Obama should just run despite no real qualifications for office. And, like, that's what he did. And it turned out to be completely correct advice. (laughs) And Obama was a totally fine president. And I should also note that Abraham Lincoln, who everyone acknowledges is the best president, was comically appalling.
1: <laughs> so there's no obvious reason why you should do it. But but there is something very gendered here. There's a right. lot of yes. there's a lot of experimental evidence that shows that Men are willing to, in this case, talk about things or raise their hand – talk about things they don't know about or raise their hand for positions they are unqualified for, whereas women demand of themselves a much higher level of knowledge, expertise, or qualifications. Yeah. Can I give – there's our, this please, great
2: yeah. um, paper, Jennifer Lawless, author of that book, who she did for Brookings in 2008, where she kind of rounded up the type of people you'd expect to run for office, people in business, educators, you know, state legislators – and surveyed them. And so they basically all have the same level of qualification. Yeah. When you ask them, you know, are you very qualified to run for public office? 33% of men say yes. 20% of men—or 33% of men say yes. 20% of women say yes. And then if you ask—and in every way, kind of men rate their own qualifications, you know, higher than, than women do. And this is a group—or or another one that, you know, she asked— people to say, do you agree with the statement? I know a lot about public policy issues. 46% of women say yes compared to 59% of men. So there is this like very real self-assessment yeah. gap that um, that kind of manifests itself in important ways.
1: Yeah. And that stuff, it really matters. And then you, you get on the other hand where, I mean, and this is a place where I think you really see the gendered assessment of of Clinton in particular. Um, by the way, I do think Ryan Liz's advice on this is right. And I think it's a reason Elizabeth Warren should have run this year. You should kind of run when you, you have momentum. Uh, I think something you saw with Clinton is that experience is often not a huge advantage in American politics because you've just been around through different cycles of public opinion and have your name or, or at least your statements on a lot of different piece of legislation that may or may not have worn well. But I think something interesting about Clinton is that if you listen to how people talk about her and particularly even in how they praise her, you have this very traditional, um, she's incredibly prepared. Nobody knows the briefing book's better. You know, she's at every meeting. She's super attentive. I mean, you really hear about what is basically a super A student. And and David Brooks wrote a column, I think it was about a month ago. It got a lot of criticism. He said, you know, the problem with Hillary Clinton is that everybody knows how like what a hard worker she is, but nobody knows what she does for fun, which also is not true. We know a lot about what Hillary Clinton does for fun. She enjoys yoga and hanging out with her grandchildren, uh, her grandchild. But nevertheless, there is this persistent thing where on the one hand, you'll have uh, a you have these gendered expectations that have affected women in, in this way to make people feel they have to show beyond any sort of reasonable doubt how qualified they are, how hard they work, how conscientious they would be in the job. And then once you've done that, people are like, well, you don't seem like any fun at all. I don't believe you've right. listened like you to Right. videos. <laughs>
2: <was laughs> this was totally true in 2008 as well, where like Obama just seemed like so fucking cool. And then there's the same thing. So I wrote at Matt's suggestion, I revisited an essay I wrote for Newsweek when I was 23 about Hillary and basically writing about the same thing that... You know,
1: let's actually turn to that because I want to I want to talk about that essay. But first.
0: So what, what, what did you write? You, you have a good piece today looking back at this piece.
2: yes. Yeah, so, but tell us just,
0: a, like, the, what was the original piece? Like, yes. Like, how did it come about? Yeah,
2: so one of the great and terrible things of writing on the internet is you can find literally everything you wrote. So my high school live journal is out there, and this essay I wrote for Newsweek—
1: It really is. It really
2: is. Esther can <laughs> confirm that, you know, you can find my deepest, darkest secrets from um, Eastlake High School. But what I wrote about, you know, today—or today on Vox or Wednesday for— Um, everyone listening, was this essay I wrote when I was 23. Um, It was called Sorry, Hillary, Girls Already Rule. It was kind of this big package for Newsweek where— I was just started my first job as an editorial assistant about um kind of Hillary and gender and I was the token millennial on staff so I wrote from the kind of young person perspective
1: were you called were, were we called millennials at that point I
2: don't know no, but I was I think, def- I think it was
0: still generation Y Okay
2: whatever I was I was the youngest person on the politics team and so I was asked to speak for the youngs in this cover package and and I I wrote an essay that's felt like weirdly kind of on the nose this election cycle too about how Hillary didn't feel like a revolutionary candidate to me one cuz Obama seemed so cool and Hillary seemed like kind of like too studious you know to me as like a very young voter that that she she put out this this I don't know if you guys remember it it was like this really weird like Hillary for you and me video that it was like really trying to be fun like Obama had his like Will I Am tribute that like everyone loved and like everyone was watching and then Hillary clearly like tried to do it and it just like didn't fit her personality But then also writing about how, you know, a female candidate didn't feel remarkable to me because I kind of looked around me and saw women succeeding at the exact same rate as men. Like, all of my friends were going to med school, going to law school. I was coming out of, you know, a very good private university, and and everyone seemed to be on their way to great things. Um, You know, now at kind of Matt's suggestion, I decided to look at that essay a second time. And it's definitely true that a female candidate has begun to feel more remarkable to me as I kind of move up in my own career, where I look around and I see the very top leadership positions are very rarely filled with filled with women. I was thinking about, you know, I've worked at like four different newsrooms over the past eight years, and none of them have had a female editor-in-chief. Nothing against you or anything, Ezra. Um, and it It struck me as much more remarkable to think about, you know, as I've moved closer to those higher up positions, that those are still in 2016, even though we have heads of state who are female, we've had more leaders who are female, that it's still quite remarkable to see a woman kind of push against all the obstacles Matt was talking about and make it to, you know, be on the cusp of making it to the very top position and much more meaningful to think about, think about that kind of change and kind of what kind of leadership example it's going to set for a lot of women in the future.
1: You also had a chart in there I thought was really interesting and and I've heard this discussion a bit throughout the the campaign that the perspective that young women and uh, you know, women in their 30s or 40s or 50s have on this are, 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 are quite different. But you had a chart about the pay gap mm-hmm. and what are the sort of life cycle trends you see in the pay gap. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk through that? Because I thought yeah. that was super Oh, it's such
2: an interesting chart. So it's from this paper that um, the Harvard economist Claudia Golden um, wrote in 2014, and she's done a lot of really great work on the gender pay gap. And one of the things that was just so illuminating about that chart is it basically is it's like um, you should think of like a U shape almost, um, a little bit of a U, but like not so steep. You kind of like slide down and then slide back up. And what you see is when people enter the workforce, the pay gap is relatively small and it keeps getting smaller. So, you know, women who were born in 1978, they had about like a 10% pay gap um, from their male counterparts like at the start of their careers. women born in the 1940s had a much larger one. I forget what it was, but I want to say like around like 20 or 30%. But then what you see happen immediately over time is the pay gap just starts to get bigger and bigger as you go into your 30s and 40s. And obviously, this is the time when people are starting families, when they're kind of starting to have kids and have other responsibilities. And then the pay gap starts shrinking again in like late 40s, 50s, presumably when kids have grown up, when they've gone out of the house. And it it really was, you know, I agree with Ezra that it was a really striking chart about how, and I think this is really shaped my perspective, you know, because when I was 23 and I felt like things were equal, like I actually wasn't that wrong. Like things were probably pretty equal to me and my male colleagues. Now that I'm 31 and I'm kind of like on this downward sad slope of this graph, it's become much more striking. As I watch my friends of kids, you know, as I think about having kids in the next few years, it's become much more striking, the obstacles and the way that, um, you know, when I wrote the headline—I didn't write the headline, but the headline on my piece that accurately described it was— you know, sorry, Hillary, girls already rule. And it definitely felt true at 23. It definitely does not feel true at 31 that that the same kind of playing field is there.
1: And something that I think matters about that is that like you connect that to research that Matt, you wrote about recently that women really do govern differently and mm-hmm. they govern differently. It seems from the research you were talking about connected to a bunch of these issues that they are sensitized to some of these questions. And so they just give them, a higher priority. So, so electing women around some of these concerns isn't just representational, but it's actually ends up addressing them more directly.
2: Yeah. Th- this was
0: interesting to me. We know, I mean, you just look at voting, right? so like women are more liberal than mm-hmm. men in the aggregate. So if you were just like put a blindfold on and guess, you know, if, if you just break Congress out by gender, you'll see very different voting behavior, but that's because they're in different political parties. Um, What I learned that was interesting was that you can control for both partisan affiliation and you can control for district voting behavior. Um, And you still find that men and women vote differently, that just elected officials are constrained by party affiliation and they're constrained by district politics, but they are not by any means like you know, uh, in a straight jacket, they have some autonomy and they can like, you know, do what they want to some extent. And women office holders pay more attention to issues related to childcare, family life, women's health. Um, so, you know, some things that are super duper specifically women and then some other things that are just loom a little bit larger in, in women's life. Um, they also pay more attention, uh, some, some research finds, to the impact of policies on the neediest people. Um, and I think broadly speaking, you would say that leads to more liberal uh, policy outcomes. You, you saw like the last time there was a big— But, but like,
1: can, can I ask a just clarifying question? Yeah. Is what that—is the— Take away that research, it leads to more liberal policy outcomes or that holding liberalism constant, it leads to a different prioritization of policy. Well, that's
0: what I was going to say. It's it's a little bit difficult to fully parse. I mean, I think if you say on a high level, Congress is going to spend more time worrying about child care policy, that like realistically, that probably means Congress is going to pass more liberal laws. Um, but but the finding really is that they talk more about the issue. And in principle, I mean, I, I've heard it raised that one reason the cost of daycare is so expensive in DC is that the industry is overregulated. Um, I don't know if that's true. I haven't looked into it. But that is like a right of center take on childcare. And the an example of the kind of thing that a conservative woman politician might think to put on the agenda, whereas a conservative male politician is maybe just not that interested in the whole subject. Mm -hmm. And like if forced to talk about childcare, would probably send his staff be like, what can we do on this and come back with the answer? Well, you know, we need to change this rule that says the kids all have to be on the first floor. That's like grossly inflating costs, blah, blah, blah. But it really does like the agenda space matters a lot. As far as I know, the United States Congress has never taken up the question of whether child care facilities are regulated excessively stringently. Um, There have been a lot of congressional Republican majorities who have put on the agenda a lot of deregulatory initiatives, but like they... You know, it, it seems like as a caucus, they are not that interested in this whole question. And that is very plausibly related to the fact that there are very few women in the Republican caucus. And, and one line of research shows that the impact of women in legislative bodies is multiplicative, right? That as women reach critical mass, their male colleagues also start spending more time addressing these kind of questions, presumably because to an extent you have to participate in the discussions that are happening, right? When there's 10% of, of the people in the room are women, the men can ignore them. When it gets to like 30 40%, you have to come up with, with mm-hmm. something to say. And that's, you know, it, it's a weird thing about a presidential election, right? Because the president is just one person. So like Hillary Clinton is obviously not going to say, statistically speaking, I'm more likely to be a 10, <laughs> right? Because like she just <laughs> has her policy agenda. Um, but it... it the the point is that it it matters in the algorithm. I think it matters more than people think. I think it sounds like a sophisticated thing to say, to be like, look, I'm going to vote for the person who I agree with on the issues, not based on a crude gender heuristic. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, most people are, in fact, voting on the basis of fairly crude heuristics mm-hmm. in life. And it would be weird for a person with deeply liberal convictions to go vote for a Republican politician because it happened to be a woman. But at least in primaries, like this really does Mm -hmm. matter. It seems like one of the most effective ways to get more attention Mm -hmm. paid to a certain suite of issues is to try to put more women
2: in. And I think you're right. It generally does align with a liberal set of issues, but not always. One thing that's been interesting looking at some of this is all about Congress, not about the presidential, but some of the more recent research suggest kind of less—so you definitely did used to see a lot of female legislators working together because they tend—I think some of that reflected just being more moderate in their views. Now you see kind of less of that as you have, like, a lot of very conservative women in Congress, like someone like—I think of, like, Joni Ernst, for example, or Marsha Blackburn. um, Joni Ernst from Iowa and Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee are two, like, very conservative women who don't have a lot of common ground um, with Democratic female legislators But you you do see them, like, kind of to my point, like, changing the issue space. When you had this debate about Planned Parenthood and how should we regulate Planned Parenthood, it was kind of—it was a very female-heavy committee having that debate. And obviously with very little agreement about kind of how we should regulate Planned Parenthood, but you had um, Representative Blackburn from Tennessee chairing that committee and kind of pushing that discussion forward. So I think it changes— I I definitely agree you can see in real time like how this changes the issue space. One of the other things I'm interested in, which is a question I don't know the answer to, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think about it. So Matt wrote this piece a few – I think at the beginning of this week about the consequences of having a female president. And he cited some really interesting research from – a woman named Amelia Showalter, who basically made the argument that as you rep- as you elect more women, it increases the representation of women elsewhere. So you could expect electing. A, was it like electing a senator leads to gains in a state legislature? Yeah, So she looks it? at
0: governors and senators okay. and then subsequent gains in, in state legislatures to That's exploit it. the difference between. Yeah, states. So
2: one thing I'm interested in that research that I just like haven't really come to like a firm conclusion is like how how a Clinton run, possibly a Clinton presidency kind of fits into that. Because on the one hand, you could see, like, the very happy tale of Clinton encouraging other women to run, saying, like, yes, it can be done. Or you can say see women looking at, like, the very specific example of a presidential race and, like, what, like, bullshit Hillary has had to deal with, like, the things Trump has called her, kind of just this constant barrage of sexism that doesn't really happen in congressional races. Congressional races are much more boring and like a lot less like kind of mudslinging. So degree,
1: I feel like you can't you like nothing that happens in a race with Trump happens in any other race.
2: <laughs> but I don't How do you. But I think that's also part of it. Like you can't really extrapolate as much. Totally, yeah. But how do you guys think about like when you look at like that research, when you look at the election that's happening right now, I'm I'm pretty torn on whether this like tells women like, yes, it's a good idea to run for office or like, oh, God, like stay away from like this terrible mess.
0: I have a strong suspicion that having a woman in office will spur more women to run for more things because I think it's not just about, you know, fear of, of facing certain kinds of uh, attacks or, or whatnot, but seeing what the result of facing that all is, right? So, I mean, I think there's like a, a real question. I mean, I think nobody really knows, but like, what is the upshot of like Donald Trump tweeting gross things mm-hmm. about Hillary Clinton, right? It seems very plausible to me that the upshot of that is that um, conservative leaning women are going to be like demotivated <laughs> to actually go vote for him and he's going to lose the election, right? And like people will, will see that that Hillary like... She stood strong. She mm-hmm. fought for us and, you know, all the, the stuff she says and, like, wins and people will feel a greater level of <laughs> confidence about the, like, slings and arrows of, of outrageous fortune. Um, th- the other thing about, about Hillary as, as president that I think is uh, difficult to look at based on past research, but is a real difference between Hillary Clinton and um, some other woman political figures like like Chancellor Merkel or, or Prime Minister Thatcher, is that she has a inner circle that features a lot of women. I mean, many, many, many more. We, we don't know, know who she's going to appoint to high-level White House positions, but, like, you see her State Department cast of characters, her, her, her campaign staff. Um, and, you know, obviously, they're, is a lot of difference between individuals in that, but not only has every president that we've ever had been a man, but every male president we've ever had has had a mostly male group of like cronies. And you see with Obama, Obama is actually a a very salient example because he has in some ways appointed more women to high office than than any other president by far. I mean, the uh, woman Supreme Court justice, a woman Federal Reserve chair, Uh, but these are primarily positions that though extraordinarily important do not have as their key role, like, sitting around the table with Barack Obama hashing out what they're going to do next, right? And, like, that kind of crew, you know, the chief of—all his chiefs of staff have been men, for example. Um, And, you know, the Democratic Party is primarily composed of women. It's actually a little bit remarkable that you would have, like, one after another after another in a row of male chiefs of staff, right? And Clinton will change— that, not just just like one woman at the top of the org chart, but actually many more women at the top of of org charts than we've had before in the political world. It's difficult to prove, but I just like I feel like that will make a difference. It just shows it normalizes like expectations for what does a treasury secretary look like? What is, quote unquote, presidential? I agree with that.
2: Okay. (laughs)
0: There was a great. There was a great. Actually, uh, there was a, a very funny Buzz Buzzfeed article that that I saw recently, and it was a. Uh, uh about the recent G8 summit, and it, it, it was like a, the, the jokey premise was that embarrassingly seven of the eight people had all shown up wearing the same outfit, <laughs> um, so it, can, and 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 Angela Merkel hadn't gotten the memo, um, and that's just because it's like you have a certain idea of like this is like the leader of a country looks like this, right? And it's like it's it's like laughable, but you can you can
1: broaden that. To make one other point on it, I think that we have a lot of visibility into top-level appointments, we obviously have a lot of visibility into elected officials. And so, you know, we can we can do counting there, right? We can do the counting of House and Senate. We can do the counting of presidents. Um, my wife, Annie Lowry, when she's at the New York Times, did a lot of great articles on the gender dynamics of Obama's top staff and found that it was, at least at that time, quite unbalanced. But one thing that I think is really important here about in terms of what all that looks like 10 years from now, 15 years from now, is who is getting put into key positions that are low enough on the totem pole that we actually don't really have a good way of tracking them. So on the one hand, it is a case that a president who wants to change the gender dynamics of his cabinet can, you know, kind of scramble and, you know, find a woman secretary of agriculture Binders or whatever. Binders full of women. Binders full of women, Exactly. But I think that something that would be important about a Clinton presidency and would be important in, in, but not just about a Clinton presidency but also about a female secretary of defense or a female secretary of treasury is that what I think you need in order for these ranks to be full of women in a very natural organic way in 10 years or 15 years is people who are appointing women to key junior positions now and then – making those women their kind of trusted young advisors. And that isn't something that you can impose from up high very effectively, and it isn't something you can track from outside very effectively. But I think there's good evidence, both like actual actual studies and just in my anecdotal experience of, for instance, Hillary Clinton's State Department, that you just see a lot more of that when Women are in key positions of power. And so I think that one thing that happens is if you had, a you know, reasonably uh, a more unbroken line of female um, heads of major cabinet agencies and so forth – That would actually lead to a lot of pipeline um, help. And that pipeline ends up being pretty important. I mean, the people who run for office, particularly at the House and Senate level, are often people who served at reasonably high levels in House and Senate offices before or served in government in some way. Not always, but often. And the people who get appointed to become head of the National Economics Council or head of the Defense Department are people who often rose up the ranks of those or related agencies at other points. So I think that, that something that is important there is just having your sort of mid and low level ranks be a little more gender balanced, and having folks who, to your point about the ways in which this becomes unbalanced later in life, having um, folks uh, in key positions who are sensitive to what you need to do to create a workplace that works for women who have a family, as opposed to who are frustrated by it, and so you have even if it isn't anything overt, just attrition of you know women who need to take care of their families. And a a growing rank of longtime super senior aides who are men who have been able to offload that work on their lives.
2: Yeah, another—so I agree with all of that. You know, another thing when I kind of think about the government, I go back to this Claudia Golden paper that had that graph we were talking about earlier. And one of her interesting findings is that you see the biggest pay gap in jobs that reward, like— very long and flexible hours. If you look at um, pharmacists, interestingly, have like barely any pay gap because they're so insertable for one or another. Like there's no kind of skill that accrues to being the person who stays the longest when you're a pharmacist. You just get paid for that extra hour or not. So you see like very little pay gap among um, pharmacists. But then you see these professions where there is a lot of reward given to those who, you know, are willing to be inflexible or willing to work the longest hours. It's not like, for each hour, you get the same amount of money that, you know, it's not like the hours and the and the pay is proportional. Like, it goes up much—your fa- wages go up much faster if you're willing to work more hours. And these are kind of what government jobs have often demanded. Like, when you think of people—you know, the when I was covering Obamacare, the folks I knew in the White House, like, were really giving up their entire lives as they were, like, trying to push this legislative effort through— So it'll be—I mean, it'll be interesting to see, like, how you navigate jobs that have typically demanded very inflexible hours, and those inflexible hours feel very necessary to accomplish the things you want to accomplish as president and as an administration, and how you create a system that also lets women who—I mean, just by biology, are going to need more flexibility around their schedules while pregnant and while having babies, you know, even if they're not the primary caregiver— um, it I think that's a hard I think it's a hard challenge. I think it's a hard challenge for employers outside of the government. It'll be a hard challenge for a Clinton for a, a possible Clinton administration.
0: Although it, it also does strike me as an example of the kind of thing where the identity of the leaders mm-hmm. matters. Right. That like Hillary herself is like well past that phase in her life. But she, I think, really understands the nature of the problem, I don't think that means she's going to be able to come in and be like, aha, inherent like work family conflicts and the limited <laughs> availability of all like are gone, right? But it does matter, right? At the margin, if like the president and the chief of staff and several other like senior policymakers are themselves, not just like women, but mothers who have like experienced experience with personal experience with these problems and close friends and confidants who also do to be a little bit more mindful and a little bit more creative. You know, because the the nature of like hard problems, right, is that one way you can react to it is be like, damn, that's a hard (laughs) problem. Like, let's just bracket that and, like, move on, right? Like, I, we're, we're looking for the low-hanging fruit here. And the other way you can think about it is, like, this is, like, one of the most profound challenges society faces, so we're going to try to, like, chip away at it, right? And it strikes me as just much more likely that President Hillary Clinton will try to chip away at that in the executive office of the president than Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders would. And, like, I, that's not based on like a white paper
1: or even or, Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. Right. Even Donald Trump, <laughs> who is legendarily sensitive. Right. To- but,
2: I mean, I don't want to bracket it off as a hard issue, but it's also a really hard issue. Cause like, especially when you're in the middle of like big legislative pushes, there really is a, a value to being able to work longer hours. I, I don't know. It's, I'm curious to see like how much leadership, like what the margin is where you can affect that. And like how, as a commander-in-chief who's, like, aware of these issues, like, how you balance them against, like, your own legislative agenda. It's it's a hard issue. I wouldn't put it in brackets, but it's hard. No,
0: no, no. I mean, obviously it's hard. Um, but, but, like, that's— it, I, I, I really do think that, like, that's why, like, identity matters, right? Because yeah. if there was, like, an obvious fix, right? If it was, like, well, what we need is to listen to the American Association of University Women right. and their proposal to issue Executive Order 7 <laughs> mandating that, like, everyone doesn't have this problem. Then, then, <laughs> like, Obama would do it, right? Like, women's groups would lean on him and, like, even if it, like, cost $11 billion, you know, like, they would go get it done. But, like, because— Things that are really hard and don't, like, have an obvious answer take a level of personal commitment that that other things don't.
1: That Executive Order 7 sounds pretty
0: good. Yeah. Though.
2: We should pass that one. We should get on the administration and pass that one. <laughs> it's
0: Emily's List. Emily's List weeds. really needs to
2: step it up. <laughs> All right. All right. There it
1: is. Thank <laughs> you. This has been another fun episode of The Weeds. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro to my colleagues Cliff and Matt Iglesias. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll see you next week.